0: Today on episode number 454 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, The Mental Health Monsters, with Zainab Okolo from the Lumina Foundation. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Dr. Zainab Okolo is a higher education policy and mental health expert, advocate, and educator focused on helping students overcome barriers so they can learn, earn, And lead fulfilling lives. In her previous roles, Dr. Okolo served as a policy research associate on HCM Strategist's post secondary team, where she worked on policy issues aimed at making higher education more accessible, affordable, and relevant. She also held various student service posts and research at the University of Maryland, the American Council on Education, and the Institute for Higher Education Policy. Currently, she's a strategist at the Lumina Foundation. And the Lumina Foundation, for any listeners who may not be familiar with it, is an independent private foundation in Indianapolis that is committed to making opportunities for learning beyond high school available to all they envision a system that is easy to navigate, delivers fair results, and meets the nation's need for talent through a broad range of credentials. Dr. Okolo works to significantly improve student success and increase credential attainment by incorporating holistic student services, including mental health. Her portfolio of work focuses on the urgent needs of people of color, adult learners, student parents and other marginalized student populations striving to succeed at learning beyond high school despite systemic barriers. As a clinically trained and licensed mental health professional, Dr. Okolo has supported individuals, families, and institutions in adopting strategies to overcome various mental health challenges. As demonstrated by her experience and expertise, Dr. Okolo recommends a strong advocate for increased and equitable access to high-quality mental health services and resources for all. Zainab, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thank you, Bonnie. Thank you for having me. It's a joy to have learned a little bit about you from your bio, but I'm thinking some of our listeners may be interested in hearing a little bit more about the Lumina Foundation and also a little bit more about the kind of work that you do. Absolutely. Well, Bonnie, thank you again so much for having me on your show. My name is Dr.
1: Zaina Bacolo. I have been a strategy officer with the Lumina Foundation now going on about four years and the Lumina Foundation focuses on all things Access, Equity, and Inclusion in Higher Education. And we are divided by a couple of different portfolios of which I serve the student success portfolio, looking at holistic student supports to include serving populations like student parents, adult learners of color, and also including focusing on student needs that include basic needs like mental health. My background is I'm both a higher ed research, Clinician expert, and I'm also a licensed mental health clinician. So finding my my way to Lumina in a foundation capacity, and as a as a grantor capacity, and working in the intersections of practice and policy at this moment of time has been really, really great, and really a great great opportunity for my career overall.
0: I had an opportunity to meet you in person in Los Angeles back in November of 2022, and it was at a Times Higher Education Conference, and as soon as I heard about your background a little bit, I thought, well, what a wonderful way in which those two aspects of your expertise are intersecting in a unique way. And so thank you in advance for being here for today's conversation and having it with me. Absolutely. So Let's begin by having you tell us a little bit about the current state of mental health in the United States specifically, but I know there are parallels beyond the U.S. Absolutely.
1: So over the course of a year or two, I've had a chance to have this conversation with a couple of different populations. And when we started having the conversation about the impacts of the pandemic, COVID-19, the displacement of the flow of higher education and what some of the indicators that we haven't had a chance to really zone in on. The best illustration that I could make at the time was that we were witnessing the awakening of a sleeping giant. And what I was attempting to illustrate at that time was that this issue of mental health, higher ed, and getting students the services that they that they need was not at all created by the pandemic and it was nobody's fault. It had been brewing under a bridge for a while. It was a conversation that we were kind of walking past and turning a blind eye to for, for, for decades, honestly. And that's for a couple of different reasons. Number one, it's a health issue. Higher ed had to decide what role it could play if it was going to have a play in solving for this for this challenge? And number two, once we discovered some of those answers to some of the challenges that mental health presented on campus, how are we going to bring those solutions to scale? So with that, the pandemic hit. And now we find that we are all going through a nationwide, albeit global, collective trauma. And with that comes a trauma response, whereby every sector of our society was impacted, including higher ed. And what we discovered is that we had now an enrollment crisis where students left campus or could not take the modality of just going to school online fully as their only way of being educated. Particularly for our rural students, low-income students that didn't have steady access to to Internet, for example, that kind of knocked quite a few people out of the running for having access to a quality higher education. And so what we did, Lumina, we partnered with Gallup and we did a 2020 report just capturing the state of higher education as we knew it, making sure that we surveyed students around what challenges they were facing, why they were leaving, and if they were choosing to leave higher ed, what would be the top reason? And we discovered that 76, upwards of 76% of the students surveyed indicated that mental health, emotional stress would be the reason or the reason why they decided to leave and off board from higher education. And that was over COVID. That was over housing security. That was over food insecurity. And that taught us that, oh, wow, now students are saying that this is a bigger issue. So we've gone from the giant slowly waking up to being in the moment that we're in now. The giant is fully awake. He's awake. He's demanding attention. He's thirsty. He wants to know where he is. He's trying to situate himself. And it is now our respons- responsibility to respond to that by ensuring that we're taking a listen to our student as the consumer within higher ed and making sure that they feel both supported and psychologically safe enough to continue pursuing their degrees beyond this current time that we're in.
0: I keep thinking about your analogy of the giant and it's so compelling for me saying that, but it's making me think of a joke that someone told the other day about a child waking up and there's a monster in their closet. And then the adult saying, well, no, the monster's not there. And the child saying, well, you're part of the problem. You're like in cahoots with the monster. Talk about the... The giant being awake, but us sort of wanting to stuff that giant. Can we? Can we use a closet? Probably closet's It's not the best metaphor here. Back wherever giants yeah. come from, and right, also, right. <laughs> yeah, I think also that giant we attribute. Things to the cause of the giant that just from a research basis don't really belong, and you started to talk a little bit about that of yeah. of what caused the giant to suddenly appear. And I'm saying suddenly with lots of air quotes because we're an audio medium, but yeah, tell us about that—the origins of the giant and us still wanting to to, to shove it back where it came from.
1: Absolutely. I like this idea of the monster in the closet. So I'm gonna work on that, Bonnie, and I'll <laughs> report back to you how I fit yes. that with the giant.
0: You got the and monsters like- ink. It's the monsters ink, right? Did you see that <laughs> movie? <laughs> <laughs> they were that's right. That's the visual. So, so first of all, remembering
1: that higher ed is simply a microcosm of our larger society. This is not to shame the space of higher education or leaders that want to address this issue. Mental health has been a stigma within our larger society for decades and decades. And if we trace it back to the origins of psychotherapy, the origins was to find out two things, who was healthy enough to enter into the workforce and who was healthy enough to go to war, right? That's when we were doing these kind of direct evaluations of folks and whether or not they were mentally stable enough. And if you weren't, then you were shunned by society. You were pushed away. You were institutionalized, right? Now we have a more stable economy, a more stable society, and folks are now checking in with themselves around other things, including development, how past trauma impacts their future trauma, how past trauma informs their future abilities to work and engage and be productive members of society. And... Other areas like the CDC, APA, other organizations have worked really hard to have clear definitions to work against those stigmas and to create a larger lexicon around what it means to have challenges around mental health. And with this, there has been a lot of work to create new ways of thinking about mental health, like the tagline that mental health is health, right? We don't have as much shame around somebody catching a cold as we do with somebody suffering from longer forms of depression, anxiety, or being di- diagnosed with bipolarism or other other clinical challenges as well. And what we have the moment to do now in terms of addressing the giant is give it a name, call it what it is, have folks have an understanding that they're not okay and that's okay not to be okay. Zooming back to 2020, remember 2020 to 2021, and actually some would argue we're still very much in a pandemic right now. It hasn't all gone away. It wasn't just the isolated event that happened around a global pandemic coming to dishevel and disorient our lives as we knew it. We were also on American soil dealing with racial reckoning. We also dealt with a lot of political upheaval in ways that at least for the generation of Gen Zers and millennials had just never experienced in real time before. And so all these things combined, it is no surprise that if you were affected, you were impacted deeply. And so now going back into what we are now calling our normal processes, our normal ways of engagement, and folks going, you know what, I'm actually not feeling as normal as I once did. That is normal. You didn't go through those years. And now, depending on where you were developmentally, if you were a high school student, right? on your last two years of high school, that was taken away from you. So now developmentally, you're like, you might be experiencing a little bit of regression because technically you're going from 10th grade to college. Those two developmental years where you should be interacting with your peers, where a lot of your growth is happening, was taken away. So these are conversations that higher ed has to be willing to have, have because we're dealing with an entire cohort of students with these kinds of similar conversations. And and, and it's great to see leaders from every level and space in education start to take on this conversation. It's also a relief that we have a current sitting Surgeon General that has used and and taken up mental health, sense of belonging and loneliness as one of his key platforms, because it is really important because those indicators also inform your physical health.
0: We were maybe two or two and a half years into the COVID crisis when I had the opportunity to meet Tanisa Ellaway and her colleagues, and she said something that you just said right there: of this is a normal response. And she was specifically, and her colleagues have done some research around our use and, I would argue, misuse of the word resilience. And how many times that—and again, you said this is something not specific to higher education, but where we as a society are in too many cases just saying, we got to buck up, pull yourselves up by your bootstraps. And to have them name that—you talked about the importance of naming things to say some of the things that we have gone through as individuals and collectively, it would be a normal human's response to say— not be resilient. <laughs> Talk to me more about the themes that you see where I don't know where we want to ascribe it society what have you the the powers and principalities that that want to to force responses that are not actually normal human responses to collective trauma. You mentioned all well beyond just related to covid but the racial reckoning and political upheavals.
1: Absolutely. So that's a very very big big question and I'm honored that you <laughs> laid it directly directly at my table but I'll start with the concept of resilience resilience is only resilience when you acknowledge what you what you're having to resist and persist against if there's no acknowledgement around deficit if there's no acknowledgement around need then resilience is not even it's not even possible right so if i have a challenge to overcome and you are trying to convince me that there is no challenge move on then you have created a space for me where i go deeper and deeper into my own mind and i deep further and further isolate myself and if i isolate myself further enough because of how human nature is wired and how we we thrive a lot of our health indicators are based on connection. If I go further and further into that cave of, oh, it's just me, I hit depression. I go further and further past that, I might hit anxiety. And if I find myself isolated just enough, I might struggle with thoughts of suicide and suicide ideation. So the acknowledgement piece is where we can start. Before we demand resilience or before we get back to a let's get back to normal ideation or philosophy, there must be first acknowledgement. And what we're finding on campuses that are taking on this work, that are taking on the call that their students are crying out for supports and services, students are responding to that. Students are responding positively positively to their leaders going, "Hey, I see you. I hear you." They're responding positively to mental health first aid kits. They're responding positively when their institutions have student groups focusing on mental health or peer support groups. Because students within their developmental stage, if they're a traditional age student, they make it very clear that they that they want to find their peers and they want to be seen and they want to be heard. I think the I think the other piece is that we have a really rare opportunity, at least in the higher education space, to kind of set an example for for the rest of society. Many of our campuses are extremely diverse from students from all walks of life, backgrounds, and experiences. And with that comes an opportunity that is once in a lifetime to zone into How different populations, how folks from different cultural backgrounds respond to different services. And so, if there is going to be a pivot in mental health in deciding what frameworks, what modalities folks best respond to, higher ed would be the place to do that, especially when we're seeing the correlation between enrollment and students indicating that they are overwhelmed by the stress or they feel isolated or. They cannot persist because of some of these challenges. And so I think on the on the on the positive side, we have an opportunity to grow. And on the challenging side, we have to be willing to, in this case, to call a thing a thing and not turn away from the moment that we have. And I'm and I'm happy to say that I think that higher ed has finally met its moment in being willing to have conversations like, like this.
0: Call a thing a thing. Would you tell us about the thing as it relates to the disproportional impacts on our students of color?
1: Absolutely. So, again, looking at the history of psychology, psychotherapy, therapeutic services, it really does differ based on background, how much you would trust engaging with clinicians, engaging with practitioners. And that's why representation is so important. Students need to have as many barriers that can be taken down between them and getting services removed especially when on when on college campuses so having practitioners that come from different backgrounds that are from different faith walks that have different practices and different mo- modalities becomes even more even more important i think there's also an opportunity to to kind of hear from students of color and in, in particular what it is they need and I, I do want to. I do want to make a note that, particularly from different institutional types, this is completely agnostic of institutional type. I'm, I'm making a note in that in that HBCUs, for example, they are known for their sense of belonging. They do a fantastic job with inclusion work with students and identity work with students, and they and they will continue to thrive within that work. And there's an opportunity. For those institutions to continue to receive the supports that they need to have the right type of mental health services on campuses so students are properly evaluated and properly diagnosed. We also see a disproportionate amount of students of color or underrepresentation of students of color coming into college knowing that they have mental health challenges. And this goes back to the stigma because if you're parents are not necessarily focusing in on getting you the evaluations that you need, or if your school did not have those resources, your K-12 school did not have those resources, you don't come on, you don't come onto your campus with those, with those in your portfolio or those clear ways of thinking about the challenges that you may have faced during K-12 with you. And so coming to college, this might be your first time being able to talk to somebody about some of the emotional stresses or mental health challenges that you have faced. And so keeping that in mind, I think the lowest hanging fruit is to ensure that there's clear representation on campus and that if there's any place on campus that should be extremely diverse, it should be our counseling
0: centers. A big part of this, of course, is our collective capacity to be able to reduce the stigma in seeking out those services. So we need to be aware that they exist, but then we also need to know that we could receive those and and have a appreciation for some of the benefits. Let's first start by having you share about some of the stigmas that exist and then how we might respond based on those stigmas.
1: So I think one one stigma is around around trust. The idea of going to somebody outside of your immediate family, immediate faith community, immediate circle of friends to divulge really private information about yourself is very intimidating and not typical of certain cultures. (laughs) Certain cultures are more private than others. And that's just, I'm not sure how else to to say that, but but I hope that that makes sense. It's important to create an opportunity where those conversations become more and more normalized so that in the same way a student would ask for a tutor, they would ask for mental health support on on, on campus. Beyond that, the stigma carries so much weight that it wouldn't even occur to some students to ask for that help. I think there's also a fear, too, of being misdiagnosed, overdiagnosed. Folks have inversions against being medicated, being institutionalized, having a target on your back, feeling like Folks think that you're crazy. All of those kinds of, of terms and those kind of labels that come from when you simply ask for help is another reason why I've I've said a couple of times that this is a work that we have to build as we climb. We don't have the luxury of sitting back waiting for data and then and then doing. We must we must implement resources, we must collect the data, we must change the way that we're messaging around this work. And we must display that when folks ask for help, that they're not punished. What we're seeing, too, in a couple of different systems, there's a big focus on, for example, mental health days so that students can, if they're having challenges on campus, take a few days off without without being punished or have a pause moment within their enrollment for a semester without owing thousands upon thousands upon thousands of dollars, especially when They can show that this is what they're struggling with and they just want to do well. And so, a lot of the work that we're having to do is ensuring that we are on the same page with how we're defining some of this work and making sure that those messages get across to students. And I also do, because we're talking within the context of higher ed, also make mention that faculty are also asking for very similar supports. And in fact, faculty oftentimes have said, to, to me and and, and a couple of, of other colleagues that have been kind of raising the flag on this issue that they themselves need some 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 clarity, kind of a green light to not only pursue services themselves, but also know how best to help students and what that looks like. And when do they know to report? And so there seems to now be in this moment a wide open space for faculty to take on mental health as one of the many things that they're doing on campus. And what they're mostly asking is, no, this is not our problem. It's more so if this is something that students are coming to me with, and I am kind of one of the first responders to students beyond advisors, I want to feel better equipped to help them. And so we have organizations like the Jed Foundation I'm I'm thinking about that has created faculty mental health response frameworks, or the C-Fund that has frameworks directly targeting how to best serve students of color uh, on your campus. Creating opportunities to bring those kinds of frameworks to campus so that the folks that students most go to by default also feel supported is extremely important as well.
0: I remember back when I was an undergraduate student, I was able to take a class called Sociology of Death. I mean, it was powerful. And the, the professor used to have speakers come in and They had experienced so many of life's tragedies. And I vividly remember this speaker coming in and talking about how he had lost his son in a traffic accident and all of the ways in which society's response would be, your grief makes me so uncomfortable. I'm going to need to fix it. He got us there more gently than I'm describing for the sake of brevity. But I still just remember the gift that that man gave us all in his grief was that you can't fix another person. And just the importance of presence and the gift that you can give is the fullness of your presence. And I see so many times I feel bad for faculty colleagues who didn't necessarily get to take sociology of death when they were were my age at such a pivotal time to know. Because they'll say like, oh, I'm so glad that you're there because I just don't know what to say. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say. And I'm thinking, well, I don't know what to say either. And that's that's the thing, because there's nothing I can say other than to be present. And and I'd love to hear your reflections on other advice that you may give to faculty who this just feels so intimidating and so big and that we just find ourselves feeling so ill-equipped to face another person experiencing so much trauma, and particularly when it's not trauma we ourselves have experienced. Absolutely. so kind of piggybacking on the last thing that you said,
1: particularly when it's not trauma ourselves that we have experienced. Unfortunately for faculty, it is trauma that they have experienced. Faculty were not all gathered together and put on planet no COVID while the rest of us were left on earth to try to figure it out. No, our faculty members were not only continuing on switching to new modalities at home, they were raising their kids while also taking care of aging parents. At home, they were dealing with their own anxieties, their own confrontations, with their own mortality. And so their humanity was also called into into question. Their sense of stability was also put at the front lines and and the forefront of their lives. They also had fear. They also lost family members to COVID as well. And so imagine with that heavy burden of trying to process while having a lot to lose, For faculties that are pursuing tenure, for example, where do you go to let somebody know that you don't feel as stable as you used to? And how much would that cost you if you chose to do that at the institution that you have worked hard to, to arrive at, particularly for faculty of color? Where do you go? And then on top of that, now students are coming to you asking you to help them sort through the very thing you're struggling through. So no. They did. They they have not had the luxury that they are once removed from the stress points or the challenges, but there is a there is now a new demand on their time, and so I think that as we think about ways to best support students, that there has to be a breakthrough about how to ensure that we are processing that faculty members for them to do that work well and thoroughly of being a soft hand on campus, of being a warm ear on campus. Of course, every campus is equipped with the, the few re- really special dedicated faculty members that are willing to self-sacrifice and figure out the work on their own, but for the rest that are you know, to capacity, wanting to do good work, wanting to make sure that their research doesn't fall by the wayside, wanting to make sure that their students still learn. It is is so important that we equip this space with both, not only the resources for, for students, but the training capacity to let faculty know, hey, we see and hear that students are coming to you. Here's how you help them. But also, hey, we see and hear you. And here's an anonymous way that you can help yourself. Here is a slew of resources off campus that you can also engage with. As you're working through your research, as you're earning your tenure, and as you're getting on to your productive lives in research or teaching or practice.
0: Oh, thank you so much for that that important emphasis on <laughs> the the response to me saying they haven't experienced it. I was thinking about so many students when they lose their parents and then another faculty doesn't or, know how to do that. But you're absolutely right, of course, that, that we hadn't yet discussed so much of this. It is, as you said, a collective trauma and has not necessarily in our institutions been addressed in as magnified of a ways as we can only hope we're, we're starting to do for our students. Such an important thing. And of course, also releasing the stigma for faculty seeking out that kind of help. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, this is the time in the show where we each get to share recommendations. And you spoke about the collective grief. I know people listen from all over the world. So this name will perhaps not be familiar to everyone, but sadly is too familiar to so many of us. Tyree Nichols. Passing, I would like to recommend a beautiful piece by Clint Smith, who is a thinker, mm-hmm. a writer, a spoken word poet. He wrote yes. this in the Atlantic. Tyree Nichols wanted to capture the sunset. The 29-year-old deserved more chances to observe life's ordinary miracles. And he starts out by talking about Vincent van Gogh and his painting "Willows at Sunset." And he goes on to speak about the habit practice that Tyree had of going to see the sunset every chance that he got. And it's just such a gorgeous written piece. I I think that Clint Smith does such a, a wonderful job of helping us grieve and mourn and be angry together. He does such a beautiful thing, and I hadn't known about Tyree's appreciation for sunsets, and this is just the last line in the—or the last couple paragraphs. Clint writes, Understanding this fact about Nichols, that he loved sunsets, also gives us a different sense of what has been lost. It is not only that these Memphis police officers stripped a family of a son, a father, a friend— They stripped away Nicholas's ability to watch more sunsets, to sit in observance of these reminders of how precious and miraculous life is. Nichols deserved to live a long life. He deserved more time with his family. He deserved more sunsets. So thanks to Clint Smith for this beautiful piece in The Atlantic, which I will link to in the recommendations. And Zainab, I'm going to pass it over to you for whatever things you would like to recommend.
1: Absolutely. And thank you so much for recommending that beautiful piece, especially in the loss of such a beautiful life. Just acknowledging that so many of our students will see themselves in Tyree they will see themselves in the things that he was passionate about in art in his family and skateboarding and they will be and they are and have been impacted. So thank you for for taking the time just to acknowledge that that soul that we all lost and for sharing that resource. I think I'll, I'll share I'll share two things. So first you made mention of how folks can kind of take care of themselves at at this time and because mental health and physical health are so interconnected I have four or so points that I will I will share with folks to kind of lean into particularly in this time and to do their best to prioritize that can help our our local and our global audience as well and the four are to move reflect connect and rest by movement of course there're There are some diehards like me. I love to walk. I love a good 10,000 step day. That's like my jam. But movement could be a lot of different things. Movement essentially allows you to be fully embodied in your your body. And for some of us, that's walking. For some of us, that's dancing. For some of us, that's stretching. For some of us, that's jumping rope. Anything that allows your respiratory rates to elevate every day for no more than 15 minutes really does a number on how you feel stabilizing your mood and your overall countenance. So that's the movement piece. Reflecting, again, I will unload my bias. I have been journaling since I was probably six, seven years old. And I have about (laughs) 60 journals that have captured my life from the time I was that young, all the way through high school, college, grad school, and, and, and now. And reflecting, just giving Words to your own voice is really important, but reflecting might also be an opportunity for some of us that haven't done this quite yet to go into therapy and making sure that you are having a chance and a space to unpack some of your experiences in a a way that feels safe, that feels sacred to you, and that allows you the time to reflect on your experiences and how you've been impacted by them. The thing about trauma is that it has a very long tail. And so sometimes the delayed response with how we're impacted by trauma. So I might seem like I'm super resilient as compared to you, Bonnie, because you might seem willing to really engage the emotion around a trauma, but it's not that I'm not impacted. I just refuse to reflect. But the moment for reflection will come when the memory or the or or the challenge forces me to reflect. And so proactively doing that for myself and creating that space is a is is a great way towards self-care. Connection is really important. We've learned what it means to be isolated. We've learned what it means to not being able to see our friends and family, loved ones, and being part of our community. And so taking taking time to not only connect with yourself, but to connect outside of yourself with your community is really very, very important. And then rest. All the science lets us know that sleep is really important and creating sleep routines is extremely important. All of these pieces really do. And, and beyond sleep, excuse me, beyond sleep, resting could also mean <laughs> just creating quiet time for yourself, unplugging in a way that brings you joy, reading a book, coloring I remember when when adult coloring books got really popular. I was like, "Oh, great, the secrets out!" But that just anything that would allow you to to rest and turn off your analytical mind is really what rest is. You don't have to be completely asleep, but ideally, of course, you're getting between six, eight, eight hours of of of, of sleep a night. So those are those are all pieces that you can proactively do in the physical to kind of help and support your mental health, and then. I can recommend a book that I love and that I have engaged with time and time again is The Alchemist by Paolo Chulo. I'm not sure if I'm saying his last name correctly, but I love that book because it is an adventure of self-exploration. And depending on where you are in life, depending on what you're facing, the book has themes that, at least in my experience, will elevate itself to the top of your awareness when you're reading the text every single time. So there's never been a time where I've read this book that I thought I was reading the same book, which I'm like, what kind of magic is this? But it's a very quick read and it's deeply reflective and it causes you to kind of put yourself In the place of the main character, very quickly, who happens to be a young shepherd boy that's going on this journey, and it takes a lot of twists and turns, and it just demands your attention in different ways. So, I would put that out there as one of my favorite books that feel like self help, but it's it's actually not a self help book. It's just a great, great story, a very well told story.
0: This is so unusual because to have a work, I don't know that much about it. So, this is a work of fiction. Yes. I've certainly heard the name a gazillion times, but I I literally, I just know that if you said The Alchemist, I would say that's a book and that's about as far as I would get. I didn't know that it was fiction, but how fascinating to have a work of fiction that you've revisited that many times and every time feels like you're reading a different book. That's fascinating to me.
1: Every single time, Bonnie, read it. Let me know what you think. I'm telling you, it is such a great, and it's a very quick read. So it's a great book to read. It's a great book to reflect on. It's one of these books that I kind of wish, and I, I'm i going to say that slowly because it might have like a like a journal companion to it, <laughs> but it makes you kind of want to write out how you're interpreting what you're reading and what it means to you in your present moment or challenges that you might have faced years years prior to. So for those of us that sometimes get stuck, I find that if I... If I get stuck in those ways where I can't really put words to an emotion or, or or something that I'm trying to process, reading texts like this or writing allows me to kind of unplug. And so I want to offer that gift to
0: our audience. Oh, that sounds like an absolute gift. I also just wanted to say what a gift what you spoke about with regard to rest is. When I have had trouble sleeping at different times in my life, it sort of self reinforces because oh wait I'm not getting enough sleep and 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 it and it has had a tendency in my life to to be very troubling and then of course it's really hard to fall back asleep if you're really troubled and I did read that somewhere I think it was that book called Sleep and I forgot the author's name but but that idea that it all kind of collectively matters such that I could be laying there and it may not be asleep but now I know oh. But just laying there, be a person at rest, That you know, and that just helps calm me down. And lo and behold, I can actually fall back asleep when I am not obsessed with the fact that I am losing sleep, if that makes any sense at all. So I just wanted to point that out. Absolutely. If anyone that's new for them, I probably learned that, I don't know, two or three years ago. But that, I mean, I'm 51 years old, so having learned that two or three years ago it could have probably benefited me to have learned that at a younger age. And, Absolutely. Yeah, and I just love too just the idea of rest that it can take so many different forms. And and I recently read I wish I could remember where it was but sort of this intergenerational teaching this person was writing about their grandmother and how the grandmother would sit in the rocking chair and how that was an education on rest. And no matter what was happening, the grandma's there in the rocking chair. And I just thought how beautiful that we can teach that, you know, culturally speaking, you know, down past um, generations was kind of a beautiful thing. So, all right, I got some homework to do. I got a book to read. I no, no doubt need to rest more. And thank you so much for this gift that was this conversation. And thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, Bonnie. It was great to be here. Thank you so much. Thank you once again to Zainab Okolo for being a guest on today's Teaching in Higher Ed podcast. Thanks to each one of you for listening. Today's episode was produced by me, Bonnie Stahoviak. It was edited by the ever-talented Andrew Kroger. Podcast production support was provided by the amazing Sierra Smith If you have yet to sign up for the weekly emails that come out from Teaching in Higher Ed, now's your chance. Head over to teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. You'll get the show notes from the most recent episode. You'll get some other goodies that don't show up on the show. And I look forward to seeing you next time on Teaching in Higher Ed.